welcome to Engage Boise. We hope that you enjoy this live recording of our Sunday service. Today we're jumping into uh, the message. I want to just greet you, say hello on behalf of my wife, Chandra. Uh, thanks for coming to Engage Boise. She's in teaching the preschool class this morning, so you met her if you dropped off a preschooler. She's a big part of accomplishing the vision that God has put inside of our hearts for our church, and you saw it on the little sign out there. That if we love the family, we can change the world. And we believe that we do that by being called to Christ and called to worship and called to serve. Uh, We believe that when we do that, it's the family in our home and the family of God inside of our church. We're really grateful to have all of you today. I'm really grateful to it for that because I know there's lots of churches that you could go to. uh, And I believe you're here for a reason, that you came to this church, this building, the chair you're in for a reason. We've prayed that God would speak to you. Um, I know it's hard to believe, but we are coming up on uh, the last two months of the year. Christmas is barely two months away. It's hard to believe, right? We're going to be giving you details over this next couple months, uh, about the couple, next couple of months here soon. We have our Thanksgiving feast that's towards end of November. Uh, we've got some good plans for Christmas Eve, which happens to be on a Sunday, so we'll line all that stuff out for you. Um, not only are we doing our best to plan it, because uh, God asks us to do that, but God has great things I know he's going to reveal to us about our church and what he has for us as we go forward as the year comes to a close. So, sure, appreciate all of our staff. Appreciate Joey being here today. So awesome to have you and Katie. Uh, did a, such a great job. Um, man, it's going to be uh, wonderful to move forward with you guys, I believe. So thanks for having, thanks for coming, letting us have you today. Um, Pastor Chase spoke last week. He brought such a timely message. So if you missed it, I encourage you, go find the podcast, go watch the YouTube, whatever way you like to get on the internet and watch stuff, make sure you go find it because um, he did a great job. I appreciate our staff, all the stuff they do. Um, what a better time of year to be talking about what we have been talking about, right? Heaven in the real world than now, right? October 31st is often thought of this day where you celebrate darkness, you celebrate scary things. But how many of you know that Jesus, the one who brings heaven to earth, he has no regard for which day it is because he can bring his light on whichever day he sees fit. doesn't matter. October 31st. One of the other months that has a 31st, I don't know him off the top of my head. So it uh, doesn't matter. The Lord can bring his light anytime he wants. If you're new to this series, heaven itself coming to earth might sound like a far-fetched idea. But Jesus did. He came in the form of a helpless child. Heaven walked with us for 33 years. Two weeks ago, we talked about uh, less about a specific event from Jesus' life and more about the joy that he brought with the way he lived. And we talked about how joy, J-O-Y, joy, is not based on our everyday circumstance at all. And today we're going to be talking about this interaction that Jesus had with three different people. Matthew chapter 9 is where we'll be if you want to get your Bibles ready. Three times where something happened that was just between Jesus and one person. Just between you and me is what we're calling it. Sometimes it was in a crowd. Sometimes it was not in a crowd. And you know there are people in this life with whom we have experiences, and those experiences, even if you can try and explain them to somebody else, uh, the true meaning of what has happened in that relationship, it's, it's just between us and them, right? You can try and explain it, but they can't know because they can't feel it. It's just between you and them. I think about what happens when you send a bunch of teenagers on uh, a trip together. You may send this group of teenagers off as complete and total strangers, 
You put them on a van for two weeks, and they're going to come back as if they have been together since birth. They could leave sworn enemies ready to kill each other, and they will come back. Blood brothers, nothing will ever separate us. This is my best friend in the world, calling each other brother and sister for the rest of their life. This is why mission trips actually are so powerful when you can take teenagers on them. I once on a few uh, when I was a kid and was a teenager. It's really nice to go and, and help and minister somewhere. That is a great part of it. Sometimes the truth is it might have been easier and more helpful to have a local person do the same work. But the shared experience of serving God, serving others together, it tends to bind people's heart together in a powerful way. Something happens just between them. Now, especially if people manage to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. That's what Jesus does. He calls us out of our comfort zone. I'll never forget I took this group of teenagers on a mission trip to inner city Atlanta, Georgia. And I've been on lots of mission trips. Uh, I've been to Brazil. I've been to uh, Nicaragua. I've been to Mexico a couple times. All, all sorts of places. And uh, the Nicaragua one was very primitive. It was two weeks. All dirt roads. Barely any running water. Uh, our hotel cost $5 a night. Um, the power was out all the time. If there was any power, there was wild horses running on the beach. I mean, it was primitive. But it was nothing like this trip we took to inner city Atlanta, Georgia. You see, the Dream Center had bought uh, what was the main crack house in the whole city, and they turned it into this uh, Dream Center where people could come stay, get clean, and get help, and hear about the Lord. And uh, we went down there, and man, I took these 15 teenagers, and it was, they, we ate peanut butter and jelly every day for lunch and dinner. Um, and we took them down there, and it was, we came from Nampa, where we were at the time, and I'll tell you what, man, it was so intense, because we got down there, and there was gunshots, and there was drug stuff everywhere, and it was as intense as you will ever see. Some wide-eyed, mostly Caucasian teenagers in the middle of Atlanta, Georgia. But... The thing is, all 15 of those kids, man, anytime I see them, if that trip comes up, it is like we're transported back in time. If they see each other, man, they remember what happened on that trip. They remember the plane ride. They remember the van ride in there at midnight. I mean, they remember all of it. I just saw that there's kids that I know for certain are serving the Lord today because we took them on this trip and something happened between Jesus and them and between them and the other kids that were there. Um, I just uh, heard from a couple of them this week. They're doing some awesome stuff. I had one a few years ago that I thought, I'm this kid, Brian, I honestly thought of all the kids that never heard a word I said in youth ministry for six years, Brian was the kid. And he, I was at camp, and he came up behind me, and he bear-hugged me. And I was like, what, what's going on? I didn't know who it was. I turned around, and there he was, and he was looking at me. I was just like, thank you so much for your youth ministry, serving the Lord because of you, because we went on that trip. Do you remember that trip? When we get out of our comfort zone, right, Jesus does something between us and him, between us and others. Even if time passes, the people are not that familiar with each other any longer, it's like no time has passed, right? Because there's something that happened just between them. We're about to read this account of Jesus in Matthew where he interacted with three different people, three different ways. But I believe we're going to see how he was able to lock eyes with each of them. And there was something that was life-changing that happened between Jesus and each person. So let's read together. If you have your Bibles, I, I know we have it on the screen there. Uh, Matthew 9, 18 through 26. Uh, reading you, there's a few versions of this story in the New Testament. We'll talk about that. But I'm reading you the short version. 
uh, in Matthew chapter 9, reading to you from the NIV today. Verse 9, or verse 18 uh, says this. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and put your hand. Someone just turned the page the same time as me like that. Someone come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread all throughout that region. If we look at a little timeline of events uh, and the miracles that happened during the life of Jesus, this was sometime we think during A.D. 31, the last year of Jesus' life on earth. Many miracles had already happened, but many were still ahead, including the feeding of the 5,000. Now, as is the case with lots of occurrences in the life of Jesus, it's recorded in two Gospels besides Matthew. It's also Mark 5, Luke chapter 8. Those accounts are a little longer, a little different. Now, with any event in the New Testament, it's actually really interesting to go read the different accounts, like parallel to each other, because the core information, always the same. There's nothing that changes the bones of the story. But the way that it's written down, it tends to show uh, what was important to the author, the guy who was actually writing it, and even showcase a particular writing style in some cases. Interesting thing, I think, about Matthew's account of this occurrence, Jesus' life, is that even though verses-wise it's a little shorter, it's got details that the others do not have. It just happened to be Matthew's style of writing, actually, that lots of his versions of these stories, of these miracles, are shorter. And he includes one thing we'll get to at the end that's not in the other versions that shows his purpose for writing it down in the first place. What we see in Matthew's account, though, his particularly is that desire of Jesus for something miraculous to happen just between him and us. We see first, the first thing we see in this account is that the first thing Jesus did was walk with the ruler. Look at verse 18 and 19 just one more time with me. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. In the first line of our passage, we see a detail that is unique to Matthew's account. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call these the synoptic gospels, meaning the events that you read. They're not necessarily in chronological order, although Luke is closer than the other two. Gospel of John is more closely in order than the others, although material is not the same. It's not perfectly in order. The point is that Matthew, because Matthew and Mark especially are not in order, uh, you can't always be sure if the events you read are linked together in time. It might go from paragraph to paragraph. It might be a different part, a different time. But here, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he gives us a key as to where and when this is happening. He starts out by saying, while this was happening. If we want to find out what the, the this is, we have to go to the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus uh, had gone by boat to his own town. And if you're here and you're thinking, his own town, that must be uh, Nazareth, because that's where Jesus was from. 
Well, it's important to know for our purposes today, Matthew is actually talking about Capernaum, where Jesus had settled, not Nazareth, where he had been born. The reason is because these verses we are about to read, they revolve around faith. And Matthew 13, a little farther forward, tells us Jesus left Nazareth, his hometown, precisely because of their lack of faith. Everything we're about to read in this, or we just read, happens because of faith, and he left Nazareth because of their lack of faith. And when Jesus gets to this place, Capernaum, he heals a paralyzed man. He calls Matthew, the one who's writing this gospel, to follow him. He talks some deep theology with his disciples, if you go read it. And then comes verse 18, while he was saying this. It's really interesting because Matthew includes this detail. He wants to know, he wants the reader to know, he wants us to know where this is happening. But he doesn't bother to include the man's name who approaches him, the synagogue ruler. The other gospels do. Matthew doesn't bother with the name, not important. However, we know from the other accounts his name was Jairus. You may have heard about the account of Jairus's daughter being raised from the dead. But Jairus, he was not just anyone. In fact, what verse 18 tells us is very important. Jairus was the leader of a synagogue. A synagogue in those times was the center of life for the entire town. Not only for religious life, but life in general. In fact, it is a lot like our church was yesterday. So a lot of you were here yesterday for Ron and Joanna's baby shower getting ready to welcome a little one into the world. And a bunch of us came, and we gave gifts, and there was a balloon arch, and we played games about dad jokes and all sorts of good stuff. Jairus was the leader of a place like that. And back in these times, it was not only for religious life, but life in general. Everything to do with life in general kind of went through these places in these Jewish towns. And in a Jewish town, right, they would have been focused on obeying Jewish customs. This is how you were saved and you went to heaven, you obeyed the Jewish customs. So everything, both when it came to God and when it came to everyday life, it ran through this place. And Jairus, he was called a ruler, so he was undoubtedly position of high, in a position of high authority, either in charge or one of the people in charge. Remember, a few weeks ago we talked about how the most religious people among them, they had created these loopholes for sin by manipulating God's word, by manipulating God's original commands. Those people, that was the group of people that Jairus belonged to. What I'm getting at is that Jairus, to this point in his life, the synagogue ruler, he was someone who probably had had all of the answers. If you were looking for an answer, he was the one you went to. Not only for himself, but very likely for everybody else. Maybe even whether they asked for the answer or not. If he didn't have the answer, he probably knew someone he could go ask and then act like he had the answer maybe. And if Jairus wanted God to do something, as far as his understanding at this point, if he wanted God to do something, he knew what custom to follow. He knew what sacrifice to make. He knew what rule to follow just right. But Jairus... Just like each of us at some points in our lives, Jairus had a human problem that needed a supernatural solution. You see, Jairus, he had this daughter who he obviously loved. And as a father, our first inclination is to help our kids care for them at every turn, especially our daughters. Our, our daughter, Christina, was playing bass today, and I beat her here this morning. So uh, I was, you know, getting, moving her microphone out and getting her pedals ready just right. Not for any reason except, well, she's my daughter, and I love her. Jairus had a daughter who he loved. So Jairus did something that would have been extremely out of the ordinary for someone of his position and stature. 
You see, most of the people that Jairus was around, he, they would likely have believed Jesus to be dangerous, to be a heretic. That's all in the New Testament. After all, Jesus was going around and he was telling people that he was God's son. And these people were beginning to rally around him everywhere. But Jairus has this need. And he comes to Jesus. And verse 18 tells us right here that Jairus knelt before him. You imagine the shock of Jairus' friends, of the synagogue leader's friends, when they've, they've been banded against this guy. This is the guy they've been battling. This is the guy they've been hearing about. This is the guy who's been stirring up dissension. This is the guy they just want to go away. Many of them are hoping that this guy will eventually be killed. And Jairus walks up to him and he kneels at the guy's feet. Imagine them looking at each other, look at what he's doing. And I imagine Jesus puts his hand on this man. This man, he's broken because his daughter, whom he loves, has died. And he's saying, okay, let's just walk. Look at verse 19. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. You see, at some point, Friends, all of us have to come to the point in our lives where we put aside what we've already tried, that what others may say to us, possibly even what seems logical or normal. And we got to kneel at the feet of Jesus and we have to say to him, I've tried everything else. Can you help me? Man, I've tried to follow every rule I know how to follow. I've tried to do every custom. I've tried to go to church this many times. I've tried everything else. Can you help me? I'm sure, I'm certain that Jairus was thinking, man, I hope Jesus, I hope this guy, I hope he doesn't know everything my friends and I have said about him. Just like you and I sometimes are probably thinking, man, I hope God did not hear me say that. Well, you know what, friends? He did know what Jairus said. He does know what's on our hearts, and he does know what we've said. He knows all of that stuff Jesus does, and he looks us in the eye anyway. He says, hey, let's just walk. Just you and I right now. Let's just, let's just walk. See, friends, I believe so many times in life, especially in the church, we are afraid of judgment. But what Jesus does, instead of standing judgment over us, is he decides to walk next to us. We see such a wonderful example from the ruler of this synagogue, one of the most well-known, put-together people in the entire city. And he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I have a problem that I can't fix. I love, what I love about what Jesus does here is there's no further declaration, condemnation by Jesus. Because Jesus has been battling these guys. This was the time where we could have been like, ah, I finally got him. He could have said, everyone look around. This man was a sinner, and he finally has come to me. All of you are terrible, just like this synagogue ruler, and you should follow his example. He doesn't do any of that, right? Just the walk between the two of them. But on the walk, a strange thing happens. It does say there the disciples are along for the journey. I'm sure the disciples hung back a little bit as Jesus walked with Jairus. Honestly, the disciples, by this time, they're probably used to strange things happening. But they knew to give Jesus the space that he needed. Look with me again at verse 23, 22. It says this, Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. 
She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed in that moment. Here we see something really beautiful, church, as Jesus and the ruler walk. Number two, it was not the touch that healed the woman, but her faith. So even though this ruler was walking with Jesus, this synagogue ruler, Jairus, as often happened during this part of Jesus' life, a large crowd had formed and followed him. And within that crowd was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. We don't know what kind of bleeding necessarily. Honestly, it does not matter too much. Now, continual bleeding of any kind, that sounds dangerous and frustrating. But it was not only a physical issue that the woman had. The problem is that the woman in this story, she would, uh, the problem she faced, would have, it would have affected her socially, ceremonially, religiously, in every way. Because as far as her Jewish community was concerned, uh, and this was a community that was bound and ruled by the laws and the rules of the Old Testament, she was ceremonially, ceremonially sorry, unclean if there was any blood present, her and anyone else. That meant that anyone who touched her, they would also be unclean. And if you became unclean by touching blood or someone who had blood on them, you had to remove yourself from the city for seven days, perform a cleansing ceremony, and then return. So because of her condition, even her own family, they would have had to keep their distance from her. She also would have been completely forbidden from going to the temple, going to the synagogue, which we mentioned earlier, that was where everything social, everything spiritual happens. So if you just fast forward it to our times and you, you put the same rules on there, she would not have been able to come to the baby shower yesterday because none of us would have been allowed to touch her, be around her. You add those things up and you have a woman who is stuck in the middle of a life that was probably pretty miserable. But this woman, like everybody else, she had heard about the healing power of Jesus. Of course, she had never been able to go into one of the synagogues where he was teaching. She'd had this issue for 12 years. His ministry was about three. She'd never been able to go into one of the synagogues. But the woman with the issue of blood, she was certain that if she got close enough to Jesus to touch him, that she would be healed. I believe we can see how certain she was from the desperation of her actions. In Mark's account, if you go read uh, the one that's in the Gospel of Mark, it says that she spent every penny that she could scratch up on doctors hoping to find a cure. Everyone in the town, they would have known her and known of her sickness. So she must have kept a really low, a low enough profile that she could get close to Jesus without being noticed. Otherwise, it never would have been allowed. Everyone would have known who she was because if you're around this lady, you have to go outside the town. But somehow, some way, we don't know how she did it, uh, somehow she makes her way close to Jesus, and she touches the edge of his cloak. And theologians think this is most likely they had these uh, tassels that hung off of their clothing uh, as they walked around. To, it, what they were for is to remind you to, to uh, hang on to the customs and the rules. Traditional dress for a Jewish man is what Jesus would have been wearing then. And this lady, she has risked everything to touch the edge of his clothing. She must have been pretty certain that it was going to work. Otherwise, she never would have risked it. Because imagine the panic that would have gripped the place if someone who was that unclean 
had been making their way through a crowd like that. If everyone had found out about it, they all would have realized what was happening. And it doesn't say here, but in the other accounts, there's a really important detail. It says that Jesus felt the power go out of him when she touched him. When she touched that Jesus' cloak, Jesus felt the power go out of him. And then in the other accounts as well, it's not in this one, but it's this part I always find really funny. Uh, Jesus feels the power go out of him, and he says, who touched me? It says there was a lot of people around, and Peter, of course it's Peter. It's always Peter that says the things, right? <laughs> Peter, he feels really obliged to state the obvious and say to Jesus, hey, uh, everybody's touching you. <laughs> it's kind of a silly question, Master, everybody's touching you. It's really actually an important detail because here's the thing. Even though everyone was touching him, not everyone was healed. And what this does is this rules out the possibility of power just radiating out from Jesus like a magic force field. Like he's walking around. If you can get within 20 feet, you automatically get the healing. It also lets us know that this woman, somehow, some way, she exhibited faith that the other people did not. Maybe, who knows what it was? We don't know. Maybe it was the length of her suffering. Maybe it was just how difficult how restrictive her life had become. Maybe it was the humble circumstances that surely surrounded her. It undoubtedly would have been very difficult for her to provide for herself in this culture. She wouldn't have been able to get a job, wouldn't have been able to live a normal life. Maybe it was the fact that, like the synagogue ruler, she had tried everything else, spent all of her money, tried all the solutions. The bottom line is the woman's faith, it sparked something between her and Jesus that the rest of the crowd did not experience in that moment. It was her that touched him, and it was her that made the power go out of him. Just between the woman and Jesus, something incredible happened. The thing I love about Jesus' words in this account is that when everyone else had rebuked her, Jesus greeted her with tenderness. Verse 22, look at your, your Bible there. It says, take heart, daughter, he said. Now, the word daughter in this time, it could be used when referring to a literal daughter or it could be used as a friendly greeting for someone that you know and you love. And the reason it matters he says that is because this is the only recorded place in the New Testament where Jesus greets a woman this way. Take heart, daughter. It matters that Jesus treated her with tenderness, that he treated her in just this way. And friends, in this world that is so focused on accomplishments and accolades, I think as humans in 2023, we would be, do really well to notice this. Jesus does not note the course of her action. He instead mentions her faith. The strong faith, it surely informed her action, but Jesus does not mention it. Her strong faith, it was why she was willing to take the chance in the first place. But it's the faith that moves the heart of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say anything about, wow, you must have really disguised yourself really well to get close to me, lady. Not at all. He says to her, tenderly take heart, daughter. It's her faith that moves the heart of Jesus. One other thing to note about what Jesus does here. By speaking to her, he does. He speaks to her in the midst of the crowd. It says, your faith has healed you. Letting her know out loud that she has been healed. This is really important. Because what he does is he lets everyone else know that she's no longer unclean. 
All those restrictions that had been on her up to this point for the last 12 years, those restrictions now null and void because she is a, she's now clean. In both uh, Mark's account and Luke's account, Jesus, in fact, he says to her, go in peace. Take heart, daughter, go in peace. In a moment, the course of this woman's life has been changed, not because of her action, but because of her faith. In fact, F.F. Bruce, who's this really famous uh, commentator, writes about the New Testament. He says a more literal, literal translation of what it says, that Jesus says to her, what we read, which is, your faith has healed you. More literal translation of those words would be something like, you are now a saved woman. Because of your faith, you're a saved woman. What this lets us know is that just like the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof we talked about a few weeks ago, it was not only her physical body that had been healed, but it was her heart as well. This speaks deeply to me this morning, and I believe what it speaks to us as a church, as God's people. Is this. It's the fact that we find so often, and I know I felt this before, that we're, we're not doing enough to get God's attention. Not acting good enough, not doing well enough. We might even feel like, hey, I'm not a good enough person to come to church. Not a good enough person to walk through those doors. We might feel like we've got so much wrong with us. We've got so many things in our past. We've done things or people have done things to us that weren't our fault to experience a blessing that it seems like every other person seems to get. We think we've got to go through some sort of convoluted, complicated process in order to be good enough for God. But the fact is, what this lets us know, friends, is that we've actually got it backwards. Because if this account of the woman here tells us anything, it's this, and that is that faith in Jesus to heal and save, it's all that's required to become part of the family of God. If you place your faith in Jesus to heal your heart, to save your heart, it's all that's required to become part of God's family. We don't make everything right and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus. Between him and us, he is the one who makes everything right. It's, we can't do anything to make it right. We just come to him, and he makes everything right. Now it's Jairus, the synagogue ruler. He continues to walk with Jesus. There's one more between you and me moment to look at this morning. Look with me, uh, verses 23 through 26 once more. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing the pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread all throughout the region. Last thing we see here in Matthew's brief account is that Jesus, he raised the girl to life in private. Now, the aftermath of someone's death was much different in the ancient Middle East than it is now. Uh, the people that Jesus sends away, we just read her out in verses 23 and 24, they were very likely uh, mourners that were paid to be there and make a scene. When someone died, you paid someone, people to come and make a really loud scene so everyone would know that it would happen. There were women whose actual occupation it was to come and loudly wail the name of the person who had passed away. And they would even find out other family members that had passed away, and they would wail those names as well. I don't know how you got that job. The interview process was probably interesting, you know. <laughs> yeah. Once again, we see a large measure of faith on behalf of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. 
the synagogue leader who to this point, he, up to this point in his life, he had placed his trust squarely in the rules, the customs of the Old Testament law. But Jairus at the beginning, right, uh, he knew that his daughter had died. And so he knew that the crowd of mourners would be at his house. What faith it must have taken for Jairus to walk through town with Jesus. To walk next to the heretic, the guy who's causing all the trouble. And he walks through the town with Jesus knowing that his daughter wasn't just going to need healing. His daughter whom he loved, she was going to need to be raised from the dead. But the actions of Jesus, they track really closely with how he has gone about the rest of his day so far. He doesn't confront Jairus for his legalism or for waiting to come to him until he tried everything else, because that's what Jairus did. He simply says, hey, walk with me. He only made note of the woman in the crowd so everyone would know that she was clean. Then he said to her, take heart, daughter, go in peace. So it should come as no surprise to us when he walks up on the house with the crowd of people wailing the names. And he walks up and he sends them away. It's obvious that Jesus knows the girl is dead. But he also, I believe, knows that he's going to walk in and raise her to life. And when Jesus tells the mourners that the girl has only fallen asleep, he's not saying he's going to wake her up from a nice daytime nap. He is saying that to him, what we call death is nothing more than sleep. It's that easy for him. But he sends them away, I believe, because his goal is not to create a spectacle. His goal is for something powerful to happen between him and the 12-year-old girl who lies in the house. For the faith of a broken-hearted father to be rewarded. And we know, the reason we know the girl was 12 is from the other accounts. I have a few more details. Now, I believe it's probably not coincidentally the same amount of time the woman had struggled with the issue of blood. 12-year-old girl, the woman had struggled for 12 years. He takes the girl's parents inside. He takes a few disciples inside with him. And he takes the 12-year-old by the hand. He's already touched one unclean person today with the woman with the issue of blood. And now he's reaching out and touching a dead body. He's just doing all the wrong things. He's doing all the things that would get you removed from the presence of everybody else. But he's not here for any of that. Jesus is here for a moment between himself and the girl. And he does. He raises her to life as simply as you or I would wake someone from a nap. Maybe even a little easier depending on how heavy of a sleeper you are. Our daughter, Christina, who's here, she is a very famous, famous heavy napper sleeper. If she is sleeping, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a blowhorn to wake her up, and that might not even work. In both accounts of this story, Jesus gives instructions uh, that they're to keep quiet what happened here, both other accounts. Because the reason is, it's just a practical reason. Jesus knows the more publicity he receives, the more difficult it's going to be to minister, the more danger he and his disciples will be in. The truth is this, friends, the truth is all of us once were dead in sin, but if we know Jesus, we are alive in him. He's brought our hearts to life. And there's some of you here, maybe some of you listening somewhere else, if you had asked the bystanders surrounding your life if a change was even possible. Maybe you're in this this church today, and if someone had asked about you, if they would have said, hey, do you know so-and-so went to church, they would have laughed. 
They would have been like, man, there is, and you might not know this about that person, but there's this addiction that's been passed down for generations in their life. There's no getting around it. I don't care what church they decide to go to. You might have walked into this place, and maybe people who've known you would say, you know what, actually, it's fine they went to church, but they've been making bad decisions about relationships for their entire life. They're not making a change after all this time. They might say, hey, you know what? I don't think that person has ever even thought about God. There's no chance they're going to that place. What we need to know, friends, what you need to know in this place is that Jesus, what he's ready to do is leave the naysayers, the people who are wailing loudly, he's ready to leave them outside. He's ready to take our hand. He said, hey, I know what's before. I know what you've said. I know what you've felt. I know what you've done. But let's walk. He's ready to say to us, you know what? I know what you've done. I know where you've been. But get up. It's time for a new life. You see, friend, there, there can be a moment between Jesus and you at any time. It doesn't have to be in a church. There can be a moment between Jesus and you at any time. It can be in a crowd of people where you've got everything at stake because you have risked everything to get there. Or it can be in a deathly quiet room. When we have faith, friends, and Jesus speaks, when we have faith and Jesus speaks, what this story teaches us is that the most important people among us bow before him. That's what the synagogue ruler did. When we have faith in Jesus speaks, those who, even who are unclean, considered the worst, they are given miraculous healing. When we have faith in Jesus speaks, even the dead are raised to life. My heart that was once dead but is now alive is living proof of that. And the key to these moments, friends, that we just talked about is that one five-letter word. F-A-I-T-H. Friends, when faith rises and something miraculous happens between us and the Son of God. Verse 26, the one little detail that Matthew mentions no one else does, begins to come true in our midst. Verse 26, news of this spread through all that region. Seems like this was Matthew's purpose for writing this down the way he wrote it down. For each of the three in the story, something happened between them and Jesus, the Son of God. And they would never be the same because of it. But as a result of it, the news about Jesus began to spread even farther than it already had. This is what Matthew wanted us to know. Friends, this morning, you can bow your heads and close your eyes. We're almost done today. Friends, the same is true for, for us today. When something happens between Jesus and us, the change in our life, it, was, it is evidence enough that the living God is at work within us. Because when we have faith and Jesus speaks, we are never the same. You need to know, friends, that if it hasn't happened yet, Jesus has that moment prepared for you. I don't care if you're in this room, or you're hearing this in real time or you're not. If it hasn't happened yet, Jesus has a moment for you. And the gospel, that word gospel means good news. It is such 
good news that the change in our life will spread all on its own. The good news, friends, it is here for you. The moment that Jesus had with the ruler and with the woman and with the girl, that moment is available to you. There's even healing, friends, for your broken heart, for your broken body, for your broken spirit. Show he continues to play. I just want to give the Lord a moment to speak to each and every one of us this morning. Lord, we feel your presence here, and we know that you are speaking and moving. If you're here today, friends, and uh, you're hearing about healing, and you're hearing about hearts being raised from the dead, you're hearing about people who once were, who were important bowing at the feet of someone, you're hearing about this guy, Jesus, and uh, you don't know him today. You walked into this room, and uh, you would not have said that you're a believer in Jesus, you're not a Christian. Maybe you would have once said you are, but today you wouldn't. But you you feel Jesus calling you back today. You feel him calling you, drawing you to a moment between you and him. That's you this morning. Would you just slip your hand up in this room so we can know to pray for you, to agree with you in prayer. I know that the Lord is speaking today, so here's what we are going to do. We're going to say a prayer, and uh, we're just going to ask that uh, each one of you repeats it after me. And, uh, if you've said it before, if you know you're going to heaven, you know the Lord, I would just encourage you to say it along along with me, and you're just agreeing with those that maybe are farther from him. If you're here today, whether you raised your hand or you didn't, and you say this, and you mean it in your heart, Jesus is coming for that moment with you. So everyone in the room, would you just repeat after me? Say, dear Jesus, thank you for this morning. Today, I come to you. I believe in you. I place my hope and my trust in you. This morning, please forgive me of my sins. I ask you into my heart. Said that prayer, friends, and um, you meant it from the depths of your heart. Then uh, Jesus, right now, uh, He's coming to have a moment with you. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, and Joey's going to lead us for a moment in His song. And I'm going to be uh, down here just before we close the service. If you have something you want to pray about. Maybe you do need to come rededicate, it, rededicate your life to the Lord. You want me to place my hand on your shoulder and walk that road with you. I'd be honored to do so. But friends, even if you know the Lord, he's here for a moment with you today. So would you stand on your feet this morning as Joey uh, begins to lead us before we close our service in a moment. We're just going to do a quick back into the chorus of the song, Build My Life. Just going back to that that woman who who just grabbed his cloak. I've never heard someone preach that detail that Peter had the little the little joke, everyone's touching you. But that's so true. Like it wasn't just this power that was emanating off him. It was something that she chose to do. It was the faith that she built herself on. 
So let's just take a moment and find ourselves in that same faith. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. I will build my life upon your today we just do we we tell you that we we build our life upon you our defender our savior and our closest friend Uh, lord pray for all the people in this room who have known you for a really long time i pray that in this moment you would uh, just remind them of remind them of the day uh, when you had your moment with them between you and them when you locked eyes with them and they committed their lives to you, and you said to them, God, this is my son, and this is my daughter. Would I pray that you would go from this place with us, of your power and your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would make paths straight for people in this place who maybe just in their heart have rededicated their lives to you. Lord, for those, man, they've been looking for healing for a long time, and they've come to this place, and they've reached out towards you to touch you. I pray that you would just bring them the miracle they've been looking for today and they'd have a mighty testimony. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you know the state of every one of our hearts. You know what we feel, what we think, and what we say. You love us anyway. Jesus, thank you for a bunch of hearts that are raised from the dead in this place. And I pray we would go from this place with your grace and your mercy. We pray these things. You're holy in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit us at engageboise.com. Have an amazing day.